Well, I mean, I couldn't help but notice that the fall of Paris and the fall of Kabul were almost eerily similar. You know, you had a you had a group of people in both cities who didn't who thought that their army would defend them. They didn't feel the need to leave when they when they could have gotten away without any rush or haste. Um, instead, they they waited and waited and waited, um, still not believing that you know this the the Nazis and the Taliban were actually ever going to take their city. And then when the when the day finally comes, it's a reality that you know the Nazis marching in, the Taliban is marching in. All of a sudden, everybody wants to get out, and they they had plenty of time. They could have done that ahead of time. So the yeah. fact that the, their armies wouldn't defend them, the fact that they were blasé enough about the future to to remain there, um, I found those comparisons fantastic. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Taking Paris, the epic battle for the City of Lights is on sale now and is the riveting story of the people who set that beautiful city free. Vigorously researched, Martin Dugard's historical narrative takes readers behind the scenes in an epic page-turning account of the battle for the heart and soul of Paris in one of the 20th century's darkest moments. And Martin Dugard is my guest coming up. Martin Dugard, one of the most widely read writers today, has co-authored with Bill O'Reilly, one of the most successful non-fiction series in publishing history with The Killing Books. Now, with Taking Paris, Dugard showcases his unique ability to pair fascinating historical research with compelling page-turning storytelling. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. My guest is Martin Dugard, author of the just-released Taking Paris, the epic battle for the City of Lights. It's a great read. Dugard is also co-author with Bill O'Reilly of the non-fiction Killing Books. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Martin, welcome to my show. You're in London today. (laughs) I just... Literally two hours ago, I landed. So I'm trying to freshen up and look my best. <laughs> oh, you look good. You, you've jet lag. Uh, it's creeping up on me. So yeah. when we get done, I'll, I'll go ahead and get a pint and then we'll figure it out from there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Have a pint. So is London bright and breezy? Are people moving around? Any signs of the COVID shutdowns or impact of that? I, I have to tell you, I've never seen so many people out on the streets as I did this afternoon. It's, it's bustling. Yeah, no masks. 
uh, masks in restaurants and, you know, hotel lobbies and stuff like that. But it, it's very active. Great. Well, London features in your new book, and I'm just going to hold it up here. So people who are going to watch this later on YouTube, they'll be listening on audio as well, but you can just see the cover of, of it there. And I got an early read and I really enjoyed it. Congratulations. It's called Taking Paris. And I'm sure you've been asked this numerous times, but I'm going to ask you again anyway, what was the inspiration? Why did you write this solo? Because you're best known, not completely best known, but you, you do a lot, you, you're co-author with Bill O'Reilly and all the best-selling uh, Killing series, which are fantastic reads. I've read Killing Kennedy, Killing Jesus, and they're great. But wh- why did you go alone on this? How did you get the idea? At the time, uh, Bill and I had decided that the Killing series was was done. So we we got to ten. We thought we were finished. Um, you know, and I still have a mortgage to pay, so I had to come <laughs> up with something, <laughs> come with something to write. Um, and I had always wanted. You know, there there are gaps in my knowledge about World War II, and I was always intrigued by Winston Churchill. I was intrigued by the French Resistance, you know, both of which I knew a little about, but not that much. Um, and when I kind of started looking around for a big, epic, sprawling, almost cinematic story to tell, you have this battle for France, you know, all the way from May 1940, when, the, when France falls after the German invasion, all the way to August 1944, when the... Um, Allies sweep into Paris with the, with the Free French and liberate the city. And in between, you have you know North Africa. So you've got Ronald Rommel and Montgomery, and you've got Patton. Just a lot of pieces there. And you know, and if I, as we mentioned before, I mean, I, I have a deep and abiding passion for history, but I don't like boring academic history. I don't like when I read a history book and it puts me to sleep. I like a history book that reads like a Jason Bourne thriller. I want to keep turning the pages because. There's action, there's romance, there's adventure, there's, you know, love and hope and sex and dreams, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's what I tried to do with this book, make something that kept you turning the pages. Yeah, you said it very well there. It's not boring. It's fast paced. It's breezy. It's interesting. There's a lot of historical details. There's suspense. There's drama. I mean, it gives you a rich sweep of history, but you don't fall asleep. Your eyes don't glaze over. I've, I've been trying to catch up with European history and Irish history the past few months and i gotta tell you some of it's a slug there's sidebars and there's dates and there's sub paragraphs and complicated relationships described that's why we need these kind of tomes that you're producing i am hoping i i you know the killing books are written this way um but when i did this when i wanted this to even be even faster i wanted to to rise above the page a little bit more and i'm hoping that more authors will do something similar. More people will write history the way it should be told because as, as crazy as, uh, as most fiction books can be, I guarantee the, the stories that can be told throughout history are, they're, they're more, you know, daring, they're more barbaric, they're more, they're more everything. And it's just, it's just how you tell the story. There's a lot of characters in this book, the, the key ones, you have Winston Churchill, you have Charles de Gaulle, and uh, he seemed to have his nemesis was General Gerard when Rommel, and there was a few other characters. And it opens up in Paris on May 10th, 1940. To get all that detail together, how did you do your research? Because this was during COVID. It must have been extremely difficult to get out to these places. 
Um, I, I couldn't get out to those places. That was one of the, that's actually one of the reasons I'm in London right now, because I'm part of this trip is I'm, I'm researching a new book, but I'm also going to go visit some of those sites that I wrote about that I couldn't actually visit because of COVID. Um, so, you know, I covered the Tour de France as a journalist for 10 years, 1999 to 2009. So I had extensive notes about different cities and locations in France and just observations. And I was able to go back on those uh, for some of the things we had to describe. But there, there are other ways around it. Uh, technology is good to us. You know, YouTube videos of not just, you know, events that took place in the war, but also uh, what the inside of a, a French tank looks like, for instance. Or uh, Google Earth, you know, let me, you know, figuratively go to visit these places so I can describe their, the, the lay of the land and the topography. It's not the same as, you know, standing there and smelling the air and eating the local cuisine and hearing the local slang. But, um, you know, then you throw in newspaper archives and, you know, it works by journalists for the New York Times and Time Magazine and the Times of London and other newspapers who are describing events from their, their first person point of view because, you know, they were there. It's very immediate. You know, then you throw, you know, the various other online archives. So this was a brand new way to write and research a history book. And I think what happened, what's really interesting is that because I couldn't do the travel, and I usually lean heavily on the travel, it, I, I basically overcompensated and really did a lot more exhaustive work on, you know, through the newspaper archives, through the, the databases about different people in going into their daily lives and finding all the, the stuff I could about them. So it made me really get a better three-dimensional picture of each character. I think you describe and you paint three-dimensional characters in the book, De Gaulle and all the other main characters. Uh, you do a masterful job on that. I found your um, work on De Gaulle very interesting. He, 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 there was a sort of a rivalry between him and uh, General... Uh, Gerard, right? I mean, I think the Gaulle, like um, Churchill, were very conscious of their legacies and their place in history and how history would would judge them. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm going to preface uh, this by saying that I, I only knew of de Gaulle. I didn't know about him until I began kind of immersing myself in the de Gaulle story. And he's a, a fascinating individual. He's he's tall, you know, 6'2", six, 6'3". Uh, chain smokers who's got the smell of uh, Giton cigarettes all about him. He, uh, we, he he had a kind of a small head with a big nose. And so people said he looked like a, an asparagus stock. Uh, <laughs> he had broad, broad hips in the British press. He used to say he had, a, he had a woman's hips. But he believed he was a man of destiny. And when, he, when the French government fell and he fled to England, and he just basically aligned himself with Churchill, who allowed him access to the BBC. And de Gaulle, believing himself to be a modern-day Joan of Arc, thought he was the future of France, that the future of France rested on his, his, his consistency, his perseverance, and his determination to get the Germans out of there. And ultimately, he did it, and, which is amazing, because when you think when de Gaulle first came to England, he had nothing. He had no no title. He'd been stripped of his rank of general by the, the fallen French army. He had no money. He certainly had no army. Um, and yet he accomplished amazing things in four short years. So he had a complicated relationship with Churchill. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I I would love to have been in the room with those guys because, you know, the a study in contrast, you've got this tall, thin de Gaulle and you've got the short, stumpy Churchill, both men of extreme ego, 
both men, like you know, like you mentioned, men with a sense of their presence and how history would judge them, and both determined to do the best thing for the people. So de Gaulle never stopped fighting for France, and uh, Churchill was always aware of England's place on the world stage, both during the war and what it would be like after the war as the empire began to crumble. So you have these two men determined to see their own agenda through, and at the same time, they had to work together. And it was it could be very fractious. I mean, there was one meeting where de Gaulle broke a chair, um, but in the end, they both believed that they were great men and they, they had a mutual respect for each other. And then on the German side, you had Rommel, and he was another complicated and fascinating character who was obeying his leader's commands and may have not agreed with the leader, um, Adolf Hitler, but he certainly went along. Tell us about that. It seems that if Rommel was allowed to get his way, there could have been a whole different outcome to the war. But Adolf Hitler stood there pat and was determined to fight even when the odds were totally against uh, Germany. And he, you see Hitler do that throughout the war on almost every front. He, his refusal to um, accept reality and do something more tactical and even a, a tactical retreat. Um, I went wrong with it. I kind of went into it because I've written about Patton before and I've always wished that there had been a moment when Patton and Rommel were were the opposing generals on a battlefield, but that never happened. And yet I, I kind of always came in with this, this, uh, this now I wouldn't say admiration, but this belief that Rommel was kind of like the good Nazi. Um, and he, you know, he was a little bit, but he was a social climber. He aligned himself with Hitler. Hitler eventually turned his back on him. But if, if Hitler had not invaded Russia and taken away all the men, all the tanks, all the gasoline, all the uh, ammunition that Rommel needed to win in Africa, I thoroughly believe Rommel would have swept right into, into uh, Egypt and, and taken the city, taken the Suez Canal. And if that had happened, that would have changed the whole direction of the war. But it didn't happen. But it, it, it yet to get inside the mind of Rommel and to see the how diligent he was and how obsessive he was about trying to win battles, even going alone into long rides in the desert to check out the landscape and look for a tactical advantage. It's very admirable. And in the end, it was just too much. His body broke down. How do you view Patton's role in the war effort and in what you wrote about in Taken Paris? He was also a key figure. He was a key figure. I, first of all, as a writer, you've got to like Patton because he's gold. You know, he's, he's, he's passionate. He's fiery. He's, he's intelligent. He's romantic. He's all the things that you want a character to be. And on top of that, he's very successful on the battlefield. He has a penchant for waging war. Um, the interesting thing about Patton in the, in the terms of this book was that all of this takes before Patton's greatest triumphs during the, the winter of 1944 and on, on into the fall of Berlin. But so, you, so what you kind of see is Patton coming to term, you know, at the start of the book, he's a colonel. He, his career is almost, is all but over. He latches on to, he was a tank commander, World War One that turned out to be a, not a good career path. He had been stuck at the rank of colonel for 20 years. World War II starts and he's ready. He rises to the rank of general and, he, and his battlefield strategy is something that was unique at the time, but very complementary to what Rommel was doing. Uh, so it's, what I'm saying is that from when he enters the war at the invasion of, you know, in Casablanca, and then all the way up until the end of the book where he is one of the key figures in liberating Paris, you see a growth in Patton. He becomes the general he always thought he could be. And it's really, it's very fascinating to watch. 
He was uh, quite a character, uh, bombastic, but yet had a very emotional side. You bring all of that out so well. You mentioned Casablanca. Uh, the movie Casablanca came out during this uh, the conflict, and of course, it was a, a big success in movie theaters. Well, you know, um, you have to watch the movie carefully because uh, I went back and watched it again when I did this, but. The whole movie, the premise of the whole movie revolves around the fall of Paris in May 1940. So you have these characters, Rick and Elsa, who were lovers in Paris. And she, you know, basically she had a special dress that she wore. And she said she was not going to put it on again until Paris was once again liberated. And so everything that took place, you know, you know, about, you know, the fall of Paris and then all the stuff that was going on in, in North Africa was, you know, strangely... It was written as just a, a play, and then they made it into a movie, not knowing that even though it mirrored real events, they not knowing the Allies were actually literally going to land at Casablanca and invade Casablanca. The movie came out shortly after the invasion, so all of a sudden Casablanca was on the, the hot topic of conversation for everybody everywhere. But it was almost uh, prescient how, how well the, the, the film writers and the directors uh, realized that what you know history you know reality mirroring history let's go back to the beginning the invasion of paris takes place on may 10 1940 the germans literally sweep in and it's a piece of cake there's no opposition there's no the french don't put up any resistance and they just take it over it's handed to the to the germans I, I still am surprised by that, but you 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 describe that obviously in the book. Was the French army not equipped to oppose the German invasion? No, 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 no. The French army was literally considered um, one of the best, if not the best, army in the world. They had great tanks. They had everybody was armed. They had built these magnificent forts along the border with Germany. You know the Maginot Line. They just weren't expecting the Germans to. To attack where they did attack, and when the when the Germans did attack, the French were slow to respond. But meanwhile, in Paris, you know, May tenth, nineteen forty, is when the invasion took place. The people of Paris that was the sort of a three day holiday weekend. They, were, they figured there was no way that Paris would ever fall, and they went about their business. You know, they had their picnics in the park. They went to their country houses, not not realizing the Germans were going to sweep across France one side to the other in a week and destroy the French army in the process. Literally taking the rifles away from French soldiers and in running Panzer tanks over the top of them to crush the weapons, and then taking hundreds of thousands of men prisoner. It was, it's one of the great, you know, it's one of the most infamous uh, collapses of an army in history. And to give you a, a comparison of where France ranked as an army at the time, like I said, let's say their top three, America was ranked 17th in the world as an army, just right behind Romania. Right. So that's, that's, I mean, when we think of the American, the, the might of the American army, we didn't have that then. Right. That's a fascinating. I did get that detail. I think that's maybe where America's, I'm not sure what the right word is, rearmament or when our military buildup build started sometime around then. We had started right around 1939, 1940. We were mm -hmm. paying attention. Things were happening and we knew that we ultimately might get sucked into it, but we were a nation that still relied on cavalry. We didn't, we, the cavalry element was much more powerful in the U.S. Army than the tank element, than, you know, than the armored element. And it was, can you imagine us going to wage war in Europe against uh, German panzers attacking on horseback? I mean, that's how backwards we were as an army at that time. 
But then contrast with the fact that by the time 1942 rolls around and we invade North Africa, and then two years later with the D-Day invasion, we have become the most, the, the largest, most mechanized, most modern army in the history of the world in just four short years. I mean, that's an amazing progression. Well, back to Paris again and how it was just swept in and took it over. Uh, I, I, you mentioned this in the book. It's, it's a beautiful city, rich with history and big institutions and lovely architecture. And I, I, I felt that there was uh, the idea was that who would ever want to damage a beautiful city like this? It's one of a kind. Oh, you know, and it's interesting, too, because when the Germans in September 1939 went into Warsaw, also a beautiful city, you know, not Paris. Paris is this symbol of hope and enlightenment and and uh, intelligence and, and intellectual debate. But when the Nazis went into Warsaw, they leveled the city. They slaughtered the occupants. They they imprisoned thousands. They, they had massive firing squads. When they went into Paris, Paris it was such a crown jewel of Europe that Hitler treated it like a prized possession. And the people of Paris loved their city enough that they made it an open city. They fled by the millions before the Germans came in. And so it was an open city. The German army literally marched in, marched down the Champs-Élysées, completely unmolested. It was just one of those things where the, the people of Paris did not want to see their city destroyed. So fast forward to the end, as, as, as the Allies are sweeping back in, that's when the, the, the big discussions then too are the Germans going to destroy the city on their way out? Are they going to, and Hitler had given the order that Paris should be destroyed. And I think that the German commander at the time, General von Scholtitz, didn't want to be the guy known for destroying beautiful Paris, you know, the museums, the, the Louvre, the Eiffel Tower, the Arc de Triomphe. So in the final days of the war, Adolf, Adolf Hitler was desperate to destroy Paris to really stick it to the people of Paris. All the bridges across the Seine were, were wired with explosives. All the uh, the electrical factories and uh, in water plants and everything was, was set to be destroyed. And for some, for some reason, von Joltitz, the general commanding Paris, chose not to destroy Paris. I, I, I have to think he just didn't want to be the guy who went down in history as the man who leveled the most beautiful city on earth. I wonder, was there another thing going on? This is a hypothetical, it's speculation. Did Hitler see that as his, as his second home, maybe, or a seat of parliament in an expanded empire? Oh, that's it. I didn't think about the parliament thing. It wasn't really a second home for him. He only visited, the, he visited once for just a few hours, and he never came back again, even though he took a guided tour of the city and already knew all the sites, you know, from his days as a as a struggling watercolor painter. No, but he saw it as just this um, this prize possession, but he wanted to, to transform Berlin into a city of even higher caliber. So he was using Paris as the role model for what he was going to do to Berlin later on. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Martin Dugard, author of the just-released Taking Paris, the epic battle for the City of Lights. 
It's a great read. Dugard is also co-author with Bill O'Reilly of the non-fiction killing books. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. So of all these leaders on the front cover, the cover I have, who in your mind stands out as the greatest? Oh, that's a really good question. I I have to go with Churchill, and, and here's why. It was because he was a failure for so long. After Gallipoli in World War I, he was in a political wilderness. He was he spent 20 years in Parliament just being uh, an annoying grump, and he, he was very open with his opinions. He was very um, specific in his, his policies. He didn't back down from anybody, and when he finally returned to power, he literally became prime minister just as the Germans were invading France. So talk about a baptism under fire. You know, he's in his mid-60s. All of a sudden, he's being thrust into this job. He's almost broke. He, he wasn't very good with his money. He drank too much. He spent too much money that he, he didn't have. But he, he sets everything aside, just completely sets his personal life aside and takes over the country and does an amazing job. He, he had a number of failures, and he, he learned from them. He, he was able to build alliances that did not previously exist. Simply for the for the for the for the one role of helping the Allies win the war and defeat Hitler. And one thing I love about Churchill was, you know, he gave, gave those great stirring speeches in the House of Commons that we think, you know, we will fight them on the beaches. You know, that that that. Those were aimed for the British people, but they were also aimed directly at Adolf Hitler. He didn't like Hitler. He wasn't afraid of Hitler, and he wanted to poke at him and say, "Come for us. We're ready. We're not going to back down from anything at all." Even knowing if the British. If, if Britain had fallen to the Germans, if they had invaded, he would have been the first person to get shot. So he, but he was completely unafraid. There's an amazing uh, affection for Churchill here in the United States for his role in liberating Europe. A more complicated, more nuanced attitude to Churchill in Europe. But in recent years, there's been a sort of a bit of revisionism that his stature has grown globally, that maybe the world needs more kind of Churchill type characters out there. You know, the, what, one thing about uh, Churchill, most people don't know is that his mother was American, Jenny Randolph. And she was, she, she was a very dynamic woman. And I think that's where he got a lot of his backbone because his father was a scoundrel. But um, like I said, Churchill is very flawed, but at the same time, he was able to, you know, work within the political system, which is great, but he was also able to take enormous risks that a lot I, I don't see many leaders these days taking risks that are, I'm not, I'm not talking, about, talking about political risks that are that benefit them. I'm talking about political risks that put the country first mm. and really do everything they can to build not just a national presence, but a global presence. And I think that's why you have to look at Churchill as somebody who really um, was kind of ahead of his time. Well, I'm not here entirely to sing his praises, being Irish, because that's a whole other day's work. Yeah. We know the um, the legacy there, and there are certain things that uh, certainly I could get hot under the collar with, with Winston Churchill. Uh, leaving all that aside, a totally fascinating character. And he lived into his 90s, and he was this chain-smoking cigar guy drinking brandies. I, I think, you know, I think there are two people on earth that they could pull that off, you know, the the chain smoking and the drinking is Winston Churchill and Keith Richards. No, nobody, else, <laughs> nobody else gets away with that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, it, it's weird. I, I sort of see some resemblance. I'm not sure why 
between <laughs> Donald Trump and Winston Churchill in sort of their bombast and yet getting things done. It's interesting. I, I can see that. I can see that comparison. I, I would argue that Churchill was much more of a statesman. I mean, yeah. you, watch, you watch how he he had to really be coy with Roosevelt to get his way. Um, but yeah, in terms of bombast and uh, focus. And of course, Winston Churchill was terrific at delivering his speeches in the House of Commons, a great uh, orator. And he wrote his own speeches and, of course, heavily edited them. And this was at a time of the emergence, I suppose, of modern media. Radio was there and uh, cinema. And so Churchill and Adolf Hitler were very conscious of media back then. Oh, they used it very wisely, too. And, and de Gaulle, to a lesser extent, when, when Churchill, when de Gaulle first came over in, in June 1940, um, he, having Churchill give him access to the BBC to broadcast to the French people was one of the things that, that literally began rallying the French people behind his cause. But yeah, those people knew the power of, of a great speech, the power of a present, the presentation. When Churchill wrote his speeches, he he wrote them, but he edited, edited, edited. But then before he gave the speech, he wrote them, he put them on the page in three or four or five sentence little things, almost like a psalm. So so he could he could, he, he didn't have the whole speech there because that's kind of, that gets tough to look at the whole body of text and, and really make a story out of it. So he just broke it down into five sentences at a time and really, you know, gave emphasis and an emotion to each one, you know, in a really singular way. Great credit due to America and, and Churchill and the Allies for getting rid of the Nazis and defeating um, Adolf Hitler. You know, you just imagine how the world could have been if they had achieved their despotic plot and they had we had global domination. I mean, maybe at the start of the war, that might have seemed a, a possibility, however remote. But as the war uh, raged on, of course, that that whole idea, fantasy, receded. Um, and so taking Paris is a big focal point. It's a big part of the war. I mean, it's just great the way you centered it on Paris. Oh, thanks. You know, it, well, Paris is um, it, it's, it's a metaphor for everything that is good about, you know, living in, in you know, just, just about life. You know, it, you know the, that was, we talked about before, the, it was the city of lights, and that wasn't just because of the lights themselves, but it stood for the enlightenment. It, and when Paris was liberated, I just I just recently reread an article from Time magazine from the following week. It talked about the whole world rejoiced in the liberation of Paris because Paris stood for all that was good. You know, it, it didn't make any sense whatsoever for the Allies to liberate Paris when they did. They should have, you know, from a military point of view, they should have uh, bypassed it because once you once you liberate a city, you are responsible for feeding those people, making sure they have uh, cooking oil and heating oil, and that's that takes away from the supplies that could go to your army. But the liberation of Paris was so symbolic of the sense that yes, good is triumphing over evil. We're not done yet, but we've we've retaken a really vital city. That's one of the reasons that Eisenhower, to a lesser extent, Patton made that choice to pivot towards Paris liberate the city and give the world a sense of hope. Just real quick, you know, the thing that struck me as I wrote the book is we have these big characters, the Churchills, the De Gaulle's, but there are so many people that were just uh, ordinary people, and, and many of them women, who just rose up to either act as a spy or a saboteur or work the resistance. 
And these people had no military training. They had no, you know, financial reason to do it. And they just, they were, they were just full of courage and passion. And they did amazing, amazing things with almost no resources. Yeah, you mentioned that these uh, characters and minor characters, and there were also spies in the ranks. That was another uh, gem I got out of the book and which, which drew me into it. There was um, a priest, apparently, in Paris who was spying for the Germans. Yeah, what a what a bad guy. <laughs> I mean, what I was talking, and some nun vouched from to somebody else. I presume the nun was innocent and not in the same ranks. Yeah. Well, you you imagine you have these these uh, young men and young women who are courageous enough to join the French resistance, but they feel you know they're they're taking lives, they're they're doing things that maybe are against their faith. So they go into the confessional and they tell this priest about what they're doing, and instead of keeping his vow and not telling anybody, the priest goes straight to the Germans and rats out all these people, and then they're they disappear, they never to be seen again. I mean, it's. It was reprehensible. The the and it, I think that speaks to the war. That's what how war changes people. And we don't. None of us know how we're going to behave if put in that kind of situation. Yeah. Well, what do they say? The first casualty of war is the truth. And uh, you try to measure things, and it's it's quite nuanced. That same priest had this fancy apartment in Paris. I guess that was his ill-gotten gain yeah. from the Germans. He had he had women. He had mistresses. He. He was one of those guys who was a priest um, in name only. He did yeah. not live lived, not live up to his vows. Affordable character. But having said that, there were a lot of priests and nuns and and religious and other resistant fighters who who fought the Germans and were on were the good guys. So oh, yeah, it, it, so many so many mixed characters. You never know in war where who's on what side. Sometimes. When you look today at what has happened in Afghanistan, the withdrawal um, from Afghanistan by uh, America and how that was botched up, do you think about taking Paris? Did anything come to anything flip through your mind about warfare or how you do things good or bad or leadership? Well, I mean, I couldn't help but notice that the fall of Paris and the fall of Kabul were almost eerily similar. You know, you had a you had a group of people in both cities who didn't, who thought that their army would defend them. They didn't feel the need to leave when they when they could have gotten away without any rush or haste. Um, instead, they they waited and waited and waited, um, still not believing that you know this the the Nazis and the Taliban were actually ever going to take their city. And then when the when the day finally comes, it's a reality that you know the Nazis marching in, the Taliban is marching in. All of a sudden, everybody wants to get out, and they they had plenty of time. They could have done that ahead of time. So the yeah. fact that the, their armies wouldn't defend them, the fact that they were blasé enough about the future to to remain there, um, I found those comparisons fantastic. What a what a terrible tragedy! Um, and Americans still over there. Let's get them out of it. God, they served their country and innocent people over there. What, what, what was the uh, hardest part of the writing process for you? And how long did it take you to write Taking Paris? I know you gave an interview and I found it interesting. It's uh, You have a routine. You're very disciplined. Not all writers are disciplined, but you said you, you get up, you feed the dogs, you know, you read the paper, you have your coffee. I mean, you may have yeah. been having tongue in cheek here, but you know, you do your six hours writing and whatever you do after that, go for a pint, but six days a week, that was your routine. 
six days a week and it doesn't it doesn't change when i get into when i get into book mode it doesn't change i've i've been kind of lazy these last three or four weeks just preparing to start a sequel to taking paris but that's my routine what i a new practice i adopted with this book is something i borrowed from bill o'reilly is i print the previous day's work onto on the page instead of reading it off my computer and so i edit on the page and i read it out loud just to make sure that it flows but um I think the hardest part about writing the book was it had been 11 years since I'd done a solo project. So all of a sudden I didn't have somebody else to bounce the words off of three or four times a week. And so I had to depend upon my own, uh, my own instincts and, and just hoping things were good. And every now and then I would, I would show it to people who enjoyed reading, you know, but you can't, everybody, when you do that, everybody says, Oh, I love it. You know, you're not going to get someone who says, well, this is, this is shit. You know, you want (laughs) you know, you need yeah, sometimes people to do that. Oh yeah, and that's that's the most important thing. So, but I will say this too: uh, it was nice to write in my own voice, in in write in uh, in a way that I had always wanted to do. Like I said, with history, just make it as fast and as fun and as full of material as possible, but something that people can turn the page and 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 it was the first time in a long time that I've heard um, that I've made my own decisions about the words with in 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 the voice that should come through and I'm, I'm extremely proud of the way it came out because it was at the end of the day it was it cost me a lot of heartache <laughs> a lot of yeah. you know when you write a book it's <laughs> you're, all, you're all in it's the first thing you wake up you think of when you wake up in the morning it's the last you think of when you go to bed at night and then sometimes you even dream about it so <laughs> yeah it, you know right yes. so it feels good to get it done so I guess that coffee and feed the dogs helps to get your mind off things. I hope they can learn wolfhounds or something. Um, tell us about your relationship as co-author with Bill O'Reilly. How does that work? Um, so, you know, we, we got together, we began writing together in 2009. It was a time when the economy had collapsed and there really, people weren't, those were the publishers weren't um, publishing history books at the time. They were, because the economy was down, people wanted escapist fare, like, celebrity tell-alls and cookbooks in the middle of all this um, i had the same agent at the time as bill and bill had an idea for history book and he called our agent he arranged a meeting and uh so we wrote killing lincoln that was the first it was supposed to be a one-off but it did well enough that we got to do killing kennedy then jesus and then all the way down the line and we we have a very unique process i it's and i'm not normally a collaborative person but we the way we do it is i think one of the best ways you can collaborate so you know bill comes up with the title he comes up with the table of contents i go to work i research i write a chapter and you know i write it kind of in my voice then i send it to bill he rewrites it in his voice and then then he'll ask for more or he'll delete some stuff and so then we then when we get on the phone we just put it on speaker we've done this you know over the past 11 years i've done this call in you know, hotel rooms and my own office and in cars where I'm in the habit of taking my computer with me wherever I go, because if Bill says, Hey, I got a minute, you want to work? I'll pull off to the side of the road, go to McDonald's and and we'll do it. But basically we we get together on the phone, we blend the two versions. Bill will read it out loud and then we make the changes to make sure it's good. And then we, we finish the chapter, we move on. Wow. So it's a pretty, definitely an intense collaborative process and you'd both do a lot of heavy lifting. Yeah. And it works out really well that way too. We're, um, I'm, like I said, I'm a history geek. Bill um, is, is as political as he can be. 
is a very passionate individual when it comes to history. So we we share that common image and and we want to put out a, a top quality product. And that's a great thing I learned from Bill was with taking Paris, don't just put out good enough, put out the best, you know, and then and then when you think you got your best, go back and look at it again and make it even better. And that's that's a that was a great lesson to learn. How long did it take you to complete taking Paris? Uh let's see. Started in I kind of started in March last 2020. Oh, you know what? I take that back. I was supposed to go to Paris on March 24th last year and then COVID hit. So I began writing without that. So I started, let's say April 1st, I finished February 22nd. So more nine months, longer than I usually write. Usually a book takes me six months. This one was because of the research issues, the lack of travel, it took just that much longer. And tell us a little bit more about your new book that you're in London doing some research on. Well, it's another. So uh, we're starting the Taking series. So this is the, Taking Paris is the first book. The the new book. And this is solo efforts. Solo efforts. So Bill Bill has more killing books in the hopper than you know. So I just go back and forth. Um, keeps me as me busy. <laughs> yeah. um, and then the, the new one will also be a World War II book. And we're going to, you know, after we've done Paris, we're going to turn into a new direction, but it's going to be just as action-packed and just as um, romantic and emotional and, and dramatic as, as taking Paris. But each time you do these books, you, you learn something new. I can imagine that you've learned a ton about Paris and the Second World War that you never sort of realized was out there. I did for sure. I felt I was in Paris and I could feel the heart and soul and the romance of that city when I read your book. Oh, thank you. That's exactly what I was hoping to accomplish. I think whenever I, that's one of the joys of being a writer is that um, I get to write about what I'm curious about. So when I go into a topic, like let's say taking Paris, I know the rough sketch, I, you know, I knew about the, the Nazi advance. I knew about the fall of Paris. I knew a little bit about El Alamein and the, the battles in North Africa, a little bit about Italy. But as I do the deep dive into the research and it becomes very immersive, very obsessive, very um, fastidious about getting as much detail um, onto the page as possible. Um, it becomes, I, I compare it each book to getting a master's degree in that part of history. So whether it's killing Lincoln or it's taking Paris I, I, I get a little snapshot of history and I make that, you know, my big master's thesis and then I move on and do another one. Great work. Well, I know you got off the plane just over two hours ago and you're in a, a room in a hotel in London. It, it looks like it's a sunny day out there. And you told me after you get off this interview, uh, you're going to go for a pint. Uh, uh, there's a lot of nice pubs in London. I have been here for a few years, but I plan to get over once once I get an opportunity because it's a beautiful city. Martin Dugard, uh, thank you for being on my show. It's been fascinating. And I want to have you back for your next taking book. I would appreciate that. That was, It's been a fantastic interview. You're uh, a very gracious host. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973 973- That's 973-529-4699. 
973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.